0: Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Prashan. I teach film studies and English literature at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I gave to my students in a course on analysis and argument in the fall of 2021 on how to write a research paper, Getting Started. This whole semester, I've kept telling my students, we're learning how to write a research paper in slow motion. Well, bullet time is over, folks. It's time to speed up the film. We're going to do this in real time now. We've basically got about four weeks, give or take, to write a research paper. Now, most of that work has already been done by my students in terms of their writing process. We've done a lot of the planning. We've gathered a lot of ideas. And to a significant degree, they uh, should have determined their focus by now. What do they think about the topics that they're writing about? And where do they want to focus their attention? They will have considered how to shape The uh, second assignment, which was a synthesis, and a synthesis is bringing uh, several sources together, which, as it turns out, is really what a research paper is. But I have to differentiate these assignments somehow so that students don't get confused. Because if I'm like research paper one and research paper two, people start to get fuzzy about, you know, what they're doing. They will have already drafted a uh, twice, Uh, once with a summary of one article, and then a second time with a synthesis of two articles. Um, And their summary was a draft for that synthesis. And that synthesis is a draft for the research paper that we're about to launch into, they will have revised They've revised either when they did the summary or after they got feedback from me. I always love to remind my students that uh, I have this book on revision, and the first sentence in it is to write is to revise. To write is to revise. We're never really done with our work, but sooner or later we have to sign off on it. Now, we are about to do all of those things one more time it's this is the, this is the encore but i want to talk about it as though i just assigned the project as though you just found out that you have to write a research paper for a course so we're going to we're going to walk through the writing process yet again but this time it's going to be in that 4 week countdown so this week we are talking about what a research paper is but we're also talking about how we begin to work on a paper like that through planning. So, our planning process starts by looking at the assignment itself. What is the assignment asking us to do? And uh, I'm using my own uh, assignment as an example. You know, easier for my students. That's what all these videos and podcast episodes are for. Uh, If you're benefiting from them and you're not one of my students, welcome to the party. Uh, Don't forget to like this video. (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, A researched argument of 1,250 to 1,500 words. All right. Write a research paper using your first two papers as a foundation for an argument you wish to make. Now, let's just forget about the first two papers as a foundation for a second here, because by now, my students should know what I mean by that is you can use as much or as little from those papers as you want in this last project. But let's just pretend that that statement wasn't there. Right a research paper. Okay, what is that going to mean? Well, let's see what the rest of this says. Using approaches from They Say, I Say. So in this course, we've had a textbook by Gerald Graff and Kathy Birkenstein called They Say, I Say. It's all about how to craft an academic argument like the ones that we're asked to, to work on when we're asked to write a research paper. You will construct an argument. Let's stop on argument for just a moment. Because frequently, my students mistake argument for being deliberately contentious or adversarial, you know, that they need to disagree with something that someone said. And I've had students every now and again in my classes who will say, no, 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 to just about everything that gets taught in the course. I would like to debate this. That's not what we mean by argument. An argument can be in agreement, with a source, you can say, I totally agree with what's going on here. And some of my students have experienced this with uh, synthesizing two of our sources, um, Steve Rifle and William Satsui, both agree. The original 1954 Godzilla is a classic. That's an argument by agreement. Sudeo Asada, Gar Alperovitz, that's an argument where there's disagreement. So what we should learn from that is that an argument doesn't mean we disagree, necessarily. It just means that we're arguing a point, that our paper needs to go somewhere, right? It has to have a point. Um, you will use at least three relevant, scholarly, secondary sources. We're going to talk about what those are in just a second. A reminder, what do we mean when we say relevant, scholarly, secondary sources for this assignment? Now, here are a few particular requirements of this assignment. One of these articles must be either Susan Sontag's Imagination of Disaster or Why America Dropped the Bomb by Donald Kagan. So, Sontag's Imagination of Disaster is for the students in my Godzilla track. Why America Dropped the Bomb by Donald Kagan is for the Hiroshima track. The second of your sources must be from our reading list. So this is to emulate how sometimes a professor will have readings in the course. And they include those because they want you to use them. That isn't always the case, but often, you know, you should check in and say, hey, are we able to use whatever theoretical source or, you know, we read some Plato? We, are we allowed, you know, and the, and the prof will clarify. Yeah, you can use that. And that can be one of the sources. Um, often that's that's their goal. They're wanting you to take what they're using in the course and, and fold it into your papers. But then you have to go and find some of your own content, your your third source must be a scholarly source there it is article or book i did not assign which you will locate in the library database now again a lot of the time profs don't give you this kind of a breakdown they'll just be like go get three sec- relevant scholarly secondary sources and you have to go locate all of those on your own okay so you know some classes there's there's guidance some classes it's the wild west you know, you may use more than three secondary sources, but should not exceed five. Now, this is a rule of thumb that I have, which is, and I can't remember where I got it from. I don't know if this was like, like my lived experience or if somebody said this to me somewhere along the line, but per page, you, you know, if you have like four pages, four sources, five pages, five sources, that doesn't mean you only talk about one source per page. That's, if there's no, this is not a rule. This is a guideline. It, and you might say, well, how do I know how many pages it is if it's just words? Divide the word count by 250 and you will have a rough approximation of how many uh, pages you're going to be working with. So for every 250 words slash page, one secondary source. So if it's a five-page paper, five sources, four page, four, etc. Now, this is a guideline, not a rule. Cause when you reach 16 pages, does that mean you should have 16 sources? Maybe, but there's a good chance that you have a cluster, say six to eight, uh, really key sources and you're just working with those the whole way through. Like I say, it's just a guideline. But when you have short papers, I find that, you know, this is a good benchmark, three to five. You go beyond that. There's no room for your voice and you have to be in there somewhere. Your argument needs to be present. Uh, you don't have to necessarily be going, and here's what I think, but it, your voice needs to be in the paper. And if it's nothing but summary, paraphrase, and quoting of other people's content, then your voice isn't present. So we want to limit the number of secondary sources that we use. But note that it says you may use more than three secondary sources, but should not exceed five. What if... We didn't have that clarification. And all of this, all the assignment said is, you will use at least three relevant scholarly secondary sources. I write that, or at least I used to, on a lot of my assignments. And students would just be like, three, done. Without considering whether or not they needed to go beyond that. If the assignment says at least three, but has no maximum number, the prof is telling you, you have room to go and get more. You can exceed that number. Will that make your paper better? Only if you use those sources well. So it's not like, it's not a guarantee fairy for a good paper that you have a lot of sources. Okay. Um, so that's the foundation here. Okay. What is a research paper? What do we mean when we're asked to write a research paper? Well, it's a synthesis of ideas again it's a synthesis paper and I've talked about how to write a synthesis uh, earlier in this in this term this is a synthesis of idea from different sources not just two maybe two maybe three maybe twenty you're writing a master's thesis or a PhD dissertation when you're done uh, at in your undergraduate and you move on you might be using 100 a hundred sources or more um, my work cited page for pages <laughs> for my dissertation. I think it was like ten or fifteen pages of citations. So um, a lot of synthesizing going on there. But but we do this in stages. So by the time you're done your undergraduate, you'll probably be writing pages at uh, papers that are anywhere from twelve pages to twenty pages, depending on you know how far you take things. Honors thesis. Tends to be around twenty pages, um, so a synthesis of ideas from different sources, not just you know um, what your idea is and one other person, but many voices. It should involve a central argument, and again, this doesn't mean we're being contentious. It doesn't mean that we're being naysayers uh, right out the gates, but rather that we are considering what others say, and uh, I would you know stress what. I think my students learn by the end of the semester with uh, the Hiroshima track in this class, which is I might not like that America dropped two nuclear bombs on Japan, but it's really hard to argue with someone like Sadeo Asada that it was completely, like, that. It that, you know that it was unnecessary. It's hard to take Alperovitz, Gar Alperovitz's position, where he says the bombs were absolutely unnecessary. You read something by Sudeo Asada, and it might hurt your heart. Subjectively, you might still be thinking like, well, it was wrong. Maybe so, but you're in a history class. Pretend you're in a history class. Can you really make the argument that the bombs were utterly unnecessary? I don't think so. So, you know, when we say it should involve a central argument... It isn't just what you think. It's what you've learned through the research process. And remember that a research paper is an opportunity for us to learn things that we weren't necessarily able to dive into as deeply in, in the lecture hall, in, in the classroom. Um, On the other hand, my students on the Godzilla track might not think Godzilla is a classic film. They might not like it. They might think it's boring, that it's slow-paced. They can't really see why Rifle or Satsui think this thing's a classic. But you can't get away from the fact that two people who are experts in these areas, uh, Satsui is a scholar of East Asian studies, Steve Rifle as a journalist and an expert in film... And both of them Godzilla experts, you know, are they just fans? Is there a way for us to to respond to this? If we don't really think Godzilla is that great? Maybe, but we have to stop and consider whether or not we, based on our sources, can make that argument. Or if we would be the lone voice of, you know, dissension shouting, But it's not. It's crap. I didn't like it. It was boring. Godzilla is not as realistic as Steve Rifle told me. Um, so... It has to be your central argument or position, but it's based in your secondary sources. And that is why, once again, I cannot stress this enough, the planning stage is to gather ideas and determine focus. We go and we find sources that will help us out But we don't just find ones that agree with us. We find stuff that is relevant to the argument that we are involved in, but not necessarily at the outset, the argument we are making. We shouldn't, we shouldn't come out the gates with our thesis and go, well, this is, this is what it is. And now I just need to go and find other people who agree with me. As I said before in the course, that's not research. That's proof texting. And the world is full of that kind of argument right now where we we have an assumption and we go and we find sources that agree with us or, you know, in the case of, of most people's Google experience, the algorithm vomits that up for us and gives us exactly what we want to hear. Uh, university research papers almost always require scholarly secondary sources. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, I, I skipped number four. In some courses, you are asked to bolster someone else's argument. Okay, so sometimes they aren't asking you to have your central position. They're saying, you know, respond to this French theorist's idea or respond to this Greek philosopher's idea. And, either support it or, you know, problematize it. But we're almost always working with scholarly secondary sources when we're writing papers in university. It's very rare in my own experience, and from what I've seen from what my colleagues assign, that unless you're taking, say, a creative writing course or a course on writing a memoir, uh, that you will be called upon to just say what you think. You know, just tell me, just tell us what you think. Uh, So most, most research papers in university require scholarly secondary sources. What do we mean by those? A scholarly secondary source is an article or a book, a chapter of a book, some writing that has been written by an expert and then vetted by experts. That doesn't mean that we'll never see a scholarly source that is, you know, like we, we may come across one that's wrong one that we would disagree with wholeheartedly. But that may just be because the theoretical approach that that group of scholars took is different from the theoretical approach that we're taking. Uh, and we can come into conversation. Graf and Birkenstein have given us permission to come into conversation with these scholars and to say yes or to say no, right? Or some mix thereof. Um, but we, we start with what the experts say and we can disagree with them. We don't have to, um, we should sort of see where is, where the argument is at. Uh, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm just going to stress this because, you know, some students might be like, well, maybe I'm not always supposed to say no, but isn't it, you know, more, isn't it easier to write a paper from the no position? Eh, to some degree. I think we're sort of trained for that. I'm going to argue with you and tell you you're wrong, but, I don't think that that's always the best way to be arguing. If we're coming into um, most of the bodies of knowledge that you're gonna be learning about in an undergraduate, there's already a lot of voices in there. And we're not just gonna say no to everyone and be like, watch me, I've got this whole new perspective that's gonna wow ya. We'll be wanting to get on board with where things have been before. Now, in my course outline, I have a breakdown of what I think a great paper is. And what a great paper has. And I say a great paper has evidence. You support your argument with relevant and compelling content from your primary and or secondary sources. And to remind you, the primary source is the thing you are writing about. So unless you're analyzing Steve Rifle's article (laughs) as an article, being like tearing it apart and stuff, it's not your primary source. The movie Godzilla, the original 1954 Gojira is your primary source. If you're in the Hiroshima track, then the event at Hiroshima, the dropping of the bomb, that historical moment is your primary research. And, and that is particularly difficult because you can't go back in time and see what's really gone on. So the only thing you have for primary sources in history tend to be documents, letters, journals, diaries, um, the kind of uh, testimonies that, that Sudeo Asada is working from. Sometimes it's tax receipts or grocery lists, um, but that that's our primary sources. There, secondary source writes about those things. A secondary source is talking about primary, uh, what the primary source is, uh, and this evidence. Our great paper has evidence. This evidence is delivered uh, through quotations, summary, and paraphrase. And going to stress this like crazy, you cite whenever. You reference your source, not just when you quote, but when you summarize and paraphrase as well. Because if you're writing a research paper and you don't show your prof where you got your information from, if you don't leave a trail of breadcrumbs that says, hey, look, prof, I did my research. I worked with these secondary sources. It's going to hurt your grade. It's just as simple as that. Simple as that. If you can't demonstrate that you've worked with secondary sources, that your paper has evidence then your prof's going to say well then you didn't do what i asked you to writing a research paper and using uh, scholarly sources isn't about like throwing a couple of quotations in and then waxing eloquent about what you think it's about what it's about first learning what they say and then determining what i say what you say right so when we're planning, we gather ideas by finding scholarly secondary sources. What do we mean by scholarly secondary sources? In particular, academic journal articles. What's an academic journal? It's like a magazine, but it doesn't have ads and it doesn't have glossy pictures. At least most of them don't. Maybe there's one out there that does. I've not read it. <laughs> um, and, uh, but it's like a magazine in that it has articles in it. Okay. So an academic journal is a we could just say it's a really advanced form of, of the magazine. Uh but it's distinct from magazines in that magazines tend to have popular content, whereas academic journals aren't terribly concerned with what's going on currently. The the information in journals takes time to come out, like a uh because of the rigorous process by which they are created, where an expert writes and then an expert body of Experts uh, vets that and says, oh, wait a second, you got to make some changes. It can take uh, anywhere from a year to two years for a journal issue to come out after they've started work on it, because experts want to make sure they've crossed their T's and dotted their I's. Their reputation is on the line as an expert, and so they want to produce the best and most accurate work possible. Footnotes in scholarly versions of books, like, for example, I I have a copy here of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which has nothing to do with our course, but there was a movie that came out this year, so I felt like it was a good example. But this scholarly version has, like, footnotes in it. It's not just the text of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, You can also find scholarly versions of things like Shakespeare. So the footnotes in a scholarly version would be considered scholarly secondary sources. Uh, Incidentally, what do we do with an expert DVD commentary or Blu-ray commentary by somebody like David Callet or Steve Rifle? I would argue that those constitute the same thing as these scholarly footnotes that tell us how to understand Sir Gawain and the Green Knight better. That sort of expert scholarly voice is still there in that kind of DVD commentary. Does that mean that every commentary on a DVD or a Blu-ray? No. Like, if it's just the director and one of the actors, that's just them reminiscing about how they produce the film. But David Callet, uh, other, any other film scholar, if they get a film scholar to do the DVD commentary, I think it sort of constitutes the same thing as footnotes and scholarly versions. Introductions to scholarly versions. They're gold mines again something like sir gawain and the green knight will have an introduction to it and those are often like a hey this is here the basic things that you would learn if you were in a course on medieval literature, and it had Sir Gawain in the Green Knight, and it's like a little lecture. And those introductions always have great content. I, I can't stress this enough. Um, students often just run, o- run out to get scholarly sources that are directly related to uh, their work, but they look for journal articles. And journal articles tend to be next-order discourse. What I mean by that is they're not always the best thing to be using in a first year course. And now my students are going, are you kidding me? Then why did you make us use these ones? Eh, you'll be all right. Um, but we, th- there are journal articles that are far harder than the ones that we're using in this course. Um and furthermore there there is no introduction to a scholarly version of Godzilla or uh, the study of Hiroshima that I could give you and have you understand it um in the way that we have for this course but if if we're taking a course on you know, some classic work of literature, I'm talking like way back to the Greeks, like we're looking at Oedipus Oedipus Rex or something like that. Then you read that introduction to a scholarly version and that constitutes a potential secondary source. And they tend to be more accessible than journal articles do because journal articles are written by people who write those introductions, but they Know so much about this that they have all this like esoteric, very particular information that they want to talk to other scholars in their field about. And that's one of those conversations like if you're at a party and you walk up to two tech heads who are talking about how they've developed a website and you can't understand a word they're saying, that's what it's like. I think that's what a lot of journal articles tend to be like. Whereas if we can get the introduction from a scholarly version, we at least have. Uh, a primer on how to understand those journal articles. Scholarly essays. um, Sometimes we don't get journal articles, we just get an essay by somebody and there's not a lot of bunch of citations in it. Susan Sontag's Imagination of Disaster is an example of this. It didn't start out as a source that we would consider scholarly, but it's been anthologized. It's been put into scholarly anthologies that are related to its content so many times that it's sort of Become one of those foundational articles that everyone has referenced who's talking about the imagination of disaster and you see scholars building on top of that, then that's considered a scholarly essay and then also any books on the primary source so books on on Godzilla would count unless they're just like children 's books obviously um, the novelization of the recent you know. American films, obviously not scholarly sources. Uh, we want stuff that has a sense of depth and rigor to it. And we should be able to recognize whether a source is worth our time. Uh, we shouldn't just be going out and finding whatever we can. I once had a student write, um, an essay on the French, you uh, we can sort of call him proto-science fiction writer, Jules Verne. And, uh, and took a book by Kevin J. Anderson, who is a science fiction writer, um, about a fictionalized life of Captain Nemo, one of Verne's characters. Verne appears as a character in that book, and this student read a Goodreads blurb about it and assumed it was an actual biography. And that that's the kind of spectacular, colossal fail of not paying attention to whether or not the book that you're looking at has enough rigor or in this case is fiction or nonfiction. But that, that's the worst I've ever seen. That was like colossal spectacular fail in, in D and D terms. They rolled a one, they had a fumble. Um, It was bad. But you want to you stop and just ask yourself, should I be using this source? You run into trouble when you run yourself out of time and you're scrambling to get sources. Luckily, you don't have to worry about that. this if you're in my course right now because you already have a bunch of sources, right? Um, for the Godzilla track, the Godzilla side... We have Japan's Nuclear Nightmare by Peter Brothers. Some of my students may have forgotten that we had that one because we haven't talked about it for a while. Godzilla's Footprint by Steve Rifle, which they summarized. So they know that one better than any other one in, the, in this list. Godzilla and Postwar Japan by William Satsui. And now I am forcing you to add The Imagination of Disaster by Susan Sontag to the list. Um, this may seem like cruel and unusual punishment, because I'm not giving you the freedom to just go and choose whatever you want, but I'm trying to anchor your argument so that it doesn't just sort of fly out into, into the wind. There are lots of ways you can use Sontag and bring it into conversation with Tsutsui Rifle, potentially brothers, and then whatever other source you go and find. So you, in the Godzilla track, you have four sources right now, You have to go find another, and you only need to use three. You have to use Sontag. You have to use one of the ones I've already assigned, so Brothers Rifle or Sutsui. Makes all the sense in the world to use Rifle and Sutsui because you've already written your synthesis on it. Um, And then you have to go and find one other. But again, just pretending that you were just assigned this project. You were just assigned writing a research paper on Godzilla, and your prof told you... You have to use the Imagination of Disaster by Susan Sontag, and then you can use whatever else you want. Pretend that for a moment. And you went and you located, because you do a search for Godzilla, this is what you're going to find. You do an academic search for Godzilla in our database, you get Japan's nuclear nightmare, Godzilla's footprint, Godzilla and post-war Japan. Now, what I see my students doing is they wait until the very last minute to write their research papers, which consequently means that they don't read their articles. They strip-mine them for quotations. And what they usually reveal in the process is that they do not understand what those articles are about. They only know like, oh, I'll just grab this quote. That sounds like it's right. That's good. That's, and, and, and they're not demonstrating mastery of the content. Furthermore, because I mean, that's a lofty aspiration to, 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 to demonstrate mastery of the content. It's a lofty aspiration, but let's just take it at the base aspiration. It is easier to write when your mental tank is full. And your mental tank will be full if you read your articles for your research papers. So in the breakdown of the writing process, week one, planning, gathering ideas, determining focus. It shouldn't take you a whole week to locate the articles. It should take you about an hour or two, given that our database has, you know, all these these journals that you can access. And most of them will give you the PDF immediately. It's like, do you want the PDF? Do you want to read it online? There you go. Now, there are articles that don't give you the PDF right away. They'll, they'll say, find it. Do you want to find it? Do you want to locate it? Most libraries, I know McEwen does this, but for those of you who aren't my students, most libraries will have a request system. Do you want a copy of this? We could locate a copy of this. And so what they do is they send out a request and some library somewhere else goes we have that they scan it or they you know they take it from their database and they share it over one copy for you it takes about two weeks for that to happen. So you have to be planning in advance. So when you're gathering your ideas, you might find an article and you go, Oh my gosh, that title sounds like exactly what I need. Or you read the abstract, the little summary of what that article is about. And you go, I need this article. And then you request it. But if you're writing your, your, your paper at the last minute, you can't use that article. You've just, you've just limited the number of sources that you have access to through that. Um, but once you have those sources, you should read them. That's all you should be doing in that first week. No writing yet, just gathering ideas and determining focus by getting your sources and reading them. And I hope that I've instilled in my students a awareness that an awareness that if you make little notes if you do a sort of even just rough summary of what those articles are about, you will understand them better. And when you go to write about them, the ideas come quicker, right? Now, that's, again, that's an ideal situation. But just reading them and making notes, it's going to make a huge difference. If you don't read them, you just have them, again, you're just strip mining them for quotations and that's not research, okay? Uh, you aren't doing yourself or your work, uh, the, the you're not you're not, put it, you're not doing a service to yourself or to your work. On the Hiroshima side, same thing. You've got four sources right now. I've given you Michael Milam, right? Hiroshima and Nagasaki, 65 years later. Again, you might have forgotten about that one because it's so far back. Uh, Gar Alperovitz is his Hiroshima Historians Reassess. Shock of the Atomic Bomb and Japan's Decision to Surrender a Reconsideration by Sudeo Asada. And now you have to work with Donald Kagan's Why America Dropped the Bomb. So imagine once again, this is the research paper. You're in a history class and the prof says, I want you to read Donald Kagan's Why America Dropped the Bomb and then I want you to write a paper on Hiroshima and you go and you do a search and you find, say, these these voices. You find Milam, Alperovitz, and Asada. And in the first week, all you do is read them and make notes about what they say. What they say. We begin with what they say. And then, and only then, do we start to think about what I say. Because if you jump straight to I say, right after you read Gar Alperovitz, and many of you did this, you go, oh, those terrible Americans, they're such awful people, you know, I'm going to write my paper about how awful America is, versus reading Milam, Alperovitz, and Asada, well, that's a different paper that emerges, and especially once you bring Kagan into into that conversation, as you'll see. So using those sources, we just stack them, right? And for this assignment, for my students, you have to go and find one more. So maybe you're just working with Alperovitz. uh, Maybe you're just working with Kagan um, and and Asada, and then you go and you find another uh, voice to bring to that. Then, then, so it's gather ideas, then we determine focus. Gather ideas, then determine focus. So I formulate A tentative thesis only once I know what they say. So I see what they say. Now I know what I say. That's when my thesis emerges. A thesis is a statement or theory that is put forward as a premise to be maintained, that we're not changing our minds about this, or proved. This is new and I need to convince you. Maintained, Rifle and sutsui maintaining each other's ideas. Maybe you're just going to maintain theirs. Or proved. Maybe you want to prove that they're wrong maybe you want to say something new right so if, if it hasn't been said before we're proving if if it has been said before we're maintaining and again we we one of the statements from the course outline what you know what makes a great paper a great paper is focused you have a clear argument and only use content that advances that argument you don't use content that's just topically related like i told you about Nancy Anisfield's Gojira Gojiro. Stay away from that article. It's not about the movie. It's about this weird postmodern novel with a really depressed Godzilla. You don't need that. You look at it and you go, oh, it has Godzilla in the title. I guess it should. No, don't use it. Why? It's not It's not thesis relevant. Uh, and then I told you about that um, You know, nuclear medicine article. It, it talks about Hiroshima. It talks about the development of the bomb. It's about how... You know, cancer research advanced because of advances in in uh, atomic weaponry. There's this sort of weird relationship there. Is that gonna Is that gonna cohere with Asada and Alperovitz and Kagan? And Mil- no, it's not. It's not gonna It's not gonna cohere. So you only use sources that advance that argument, okay? And then you only summarize, paraphrase, and quote the most relevant evidence from those sources. You don't just willy-nilly throw stuff in to pad your paper out. Then formulate a tentative thesis, okay? A a tentative thesis. Is your thesis too obvious? If it's too obvious, Godzilla is a giant monster, or uh, the atomic bomb was deadly, something like that. Um, Or, you know, the atomic bomb ended uh, world war ii <laughs> regardless of who you blame that's what it did you that's too obvious i don't really think we need that if you cannot come up with interpretations that oppose your own consider revising what that means is is if there's no one out there who thinks you're wrong then it may be too simple and that is again why on the godzilla side i brought Sontag in because we we need somebody who's gonna say well to the idea that Godzilla on its own is is doing this really, really deep and amazing thing. Now, there are some complicating factors there, and I'll talk about those in an upcoming lecture. But we bring Sontag in so that we have an interpretation that potentially opposes our own, okay? One way or another, we're going to get opposition if we've got at least one naysayer in the mix. Um, Can you support your thesis with evidence? If you can't, it's a bad idea, which is why... See, whenever I read this, can you support your thesis with evidence? I'm like, why do we teach people that they should come up with a thesis and then go and find sources? I was taught that. No, don't come up with a thesis until you have read what other people have to say. Find out what they say before you decide what you say. Does the thesis require an essay's worth of development? If it's too obvious or if it's too simple, you don't have a good thesis. So if you, you know, and and students all do this, they'll go like run themselves out of ideas And then they'll just, they'll tack something on. They'll be like, in addition. So it's like a whole essay about how Godzilla is this deep metaphor for the nuclear bomb. And they're like, in addition, special effects. And it's like, that has nothing to do with everything that you said prior. And it weakens your argument because it's like, um, let me tell you about how this is actually a metaphor for this really serious thing. And then it's like metaphor, 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 special effects. And then you get to the conclusion and you bring it back to the metaphor and the reader's like, whoa, that's it's really disjointed. So you want a thesis that requires an essay's worth of development. How do I know that on the way in? Do I have enough sources? Do I have do I have sources? Because if you have sources, you can always go to them and you can read and reference and respond and argue with them. You can keep padding out, or I don't want to say padding out, expanding. Your idea is if you have enough, if you have the right number of secondary sources. So if you're working with just three sources and you find out that you don't have an essay's worth of development, it's time to go get a fourth source. Read it. Understand it. Think about how it blends into what you're already saying. Can you explain why readers might want to read an essay with this thesis? We're going to talk about this a little bit more coming up. But so what and who cares? Does your essay have a point? Why would anyone want to read it? If if there's no one in the world who wants to read it, why do you need to write it? Now, that doesn't mean it has to be like, if only we understood Godzilla better, we would stop, you know, nuclear disarmament would occur if... No, it doesn't have to be that grand. It can just be your writing for people who are interested in film, film history, giant monsters, the history of Godzilla. On the Hiroshima side, we don't have to uh, solve current... Uh, you know nuclear disarmament crises we don't have to talk about any of the, the the current situations we don't have to end war we're just you know who are we writing for we're writing for historians we're writing for people who are interested in the history of the end of world war II. we're 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 looking at people who may be um you know, maybe pacifists. I, there are all sorts of ways into this in a sort of so what and who cares way, but our thesis should be something that someone somewhere cares about. So the planning stage is about reading and making notes. And this is an actual whiteboard uh, photo that, well, obviously it is, but a student sent this to me. I didn't make this up. This was a student had done this on their home uh, whiteboard as a like, check it out. This is all the stuff that I need to be thinking about. And that's what you should be doing in the planning stages. You're just writing stuff all over the place. And I like to do it on like big art pad style paper like this. I just write a whole bunch of ideas this is like a sketch for uh, an upcoming course and then I just have it sitting beside me and I can always look over at it as I'm th- as I'm thinking about it and it, like it works on my back burner so if you get your planning notes, Put somewhere where you can see them frequently, it allows you to think about them, keep your head in the game uh, as you're, you know, considering how to write about this. So, once again, you need to have three sources. One of them has to be one that I've assigned, uh, particularly right now. Um, The other ones uh, would be from uh, the course uh, so far. And then you have to locate one on your own. I mean, that's really, you know, the takeaway is you have to go and find something now that is thesis relevant, right? And you add those things together and you ask yourself, what's my thesis? And don't assume that your synthesis, the paper that you just wrote, determines what you're going to say on this next one, because the next source you find might change that. Donald Kagan might change your mind about something that you've already, you know, written about. And that's okay. Like the scholars we are working with here, right? Garal Alperovitz, Hiroshima historians, reassess. Sudeo Asada, shock of the atomic bomb and Japan's decision to surrender. A, reconsideration. Reconsidering, reassessing. Donald Kagan's Title is basically a question without a question mark at the end, right? Why did America drop the bomb? Let me tell you, okay? So we are we are open to the possibility that we may have to change how we think about something as we do our research. Uh, But again, I want you to be thinking about this as though this were a fresh paper. You can use content from the earlier ones as draft, but just think about it as a fresh paper. We dive in, we read, we become masters of the content, and then and only then do we come up with an amazing thesis, right? Uh, we want to, on the Godzilla track, it's Sontag, it's Rifle, it's Sutsui, it's maybe Brothers, and whew, go find another source. And you might be like, well, but we've already exhausted all the Godzilla side. Have we exhausted the imagination of disaster? That's new. Is there someone who's written about the imagination of disaster potentially that could inform what you're talking about? Because so far, it's just been Godzilla, Godzilla. Now we're looking at Susan Sontag's Imagination of Disaster, this foundational essay on science fiction films that involve a lot of stuff blowing up. And we're bringing that to the conversation. How does that change the conversation? So there should be some substantial changes in this last paper. But that should be our process even when we're working from scratch. Again, not that we go in, and I, I know students who do this too, they write their paper. I'm not joking. They write their paper and then they go find sources to support what they've said. So there, someday I hope those students write a book called I Say, They Say, and they explain to everyone why that's the best way to do it because I've had too many students sitting in my office just two days before the paper is due saying, I can't find any sources to support my thesis. Well, how about you find sources and then find out what your thesis is? That's the beginning of research. That's what a research paper should be about. And that is the first week of the writing process. So uh, as we enter this last phase for this course, writing a research paper proper, that's what you need to be doing. You're going to be reading Sontag or you're going to be reading Kagan. And you're going to be locating a source on your own, and you're going to be reading that one too. And that is your work in this week.